You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into another edition of Commute the Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you may just find them interesting as well. We'll promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get to your destination. On this edition of Commute, we've been hearing for the last 20 years that virtual reality is right around the corner and it's the wave of the future, but... The wave hasn't quite taken over yet. Why has this technology taken so long to catch on like we thought it would, and will it ever? If you go look at your coffee mug selection, you may just find one or two that say something like Believe or But First Coffee. Named after its creator, Ray Dunn mugs are everywhere. But did Ray herself ever intend it to be that way? Bring on the Dunnies! Even if you aren't familiar with Calvin from the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, you've probably seen a lewd image of him urinating on a logo on the back of a pickup truck. But where did these obscene images come from? Are they illegal? And what does the creator think? Hey, have him peeing on Ford on my truck right now. (laughs) All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. didn't realize you were a Chevy guy. <laughs> I'm just for whatever. I don't. Fun. I don't know anything about trucks. I don't know what I'm talking I, about. I, I, I don't either. I did have a Ford Ranger, though. That was that was my first actual car. So let's let's say it up front here. Um, so Jay's a teacher. We've talked about that before on the show. And Jay, you got a little a little froggy in the throat because you're back in the classroom. You're back lecturing uh, for what six hours a day. So we're just gonna we're gonna soldier through it. Yeah, that first day it just kind of hits you in a different way, and so. I'm struggling a little bit. You honestly sound kind of like hunky and mysterious. I, I knew you'd like say that. something like, oh, I think you sound better. I, I'm not lying, really. Dave, you and I had what I believe was our first experience using virtual reality a few months ago at our friend's house, and I thought it was really eye-opening as to what virtual reality can even be, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I actually had had put on a VR headset before a couple years ago, like right when they first came out, and the only games they had for the VR headset were like stationary games where you couldn't really do anything, and so one of them, you were under the, you were in the ocean and it was kind of scary because there was a shark swimming around so you could look around you never knew where the shark was going to be it couldn't do anything to you it was just kind of scary and the other one you were in the Seinfeld apartment so you just stood there and looked around I mean it was kind of cool but you couldn't even play anything so they've come a long way since then so you will not go in the real ocean but virtual reality ocean you know bring it on I'm not gonna lie man the people that were with me when I did that will tell you I was super scared to do it and and the shark didn't even really look real yeah there's like some deep survival instinct in your brain that goes off like we're not meant to like <laughs> simulate our own death by a wild I'm, animal you I'm know? telling you man it's nature's buffet the ocean. The conversation around virtual reality has changed in recent years. And when you talk about virtual reality, you'll hear a term thrown out a lot called the metaverse. Okay. So the metaverse is sort of this hypothetical virtual world that you could access through a virtual reality device like a headset. And in theory, it would sort of be this next level of the internet where people who actually exist in the physical world would be able to interact with this virtual world. Ultimately, this sort of idea isn't brand new though, right? Like science fiction writers have been discussing this 
this idea of a virtual world where we spend our time for decades now. And movies like The Matrix brought these sort of ideas to the forefront of our society. But the difference now is that Silicon Valley tech billionaires seem increasingly into the idea that this brave new world is just around the corner. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, described this hypothetical metaverse as the successor to the mobile internet and a kind of embodied internet where instead of just viewing content, you are in it. Tech startups have and currently are envisioning this future in a very real way. The company All Seated, for example, has developed fully immersive VR event technology in which a business, for example, could host an entire conference or expo over virtual reality <laughs> in which participants will use headsets to attend in a fully virtual conference room space. As a teacher, uh, I can envision a world where my students just join me in the classroom over VR or maybe a world where I can transport them to ancient Rome through a headset. Well, and for business after hours, or like business mixers. So I'm an extrovert, so I wouldn't know this. But if you're an introvert, that would be perfect for you because you're at a networking event, you're in a conversation that's making you feel weird, you just log out and you disappear. Yeah, you're like, I, I just I got disconnected. I don't know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to fake a bathroom run anymore. You just fake an internet outage. <laughs> and, uh, you know, while all this may seem hyper-advanced and wave of the future, it is important that VR is, number one, not really new, and number two, has yet to really catch on as an idea that the common people will embrace. Uh, the Oculus headset, for example, hasn't really caught fire in the way that Facebook, who acquired that company, expected. In 1999 or 2000, we were promised that a virtual reality was right around the corner, but here we sit in 2021, and that world seems just as far away as it did then. So what gives? Is VR actually the wave of the future? And they VR and AR, which is augmented reality, they've kind of run into this fundamental problem, and that is that people mostly like being in their reality. We love visual entertainment, yes, but do we love immersive visual entertainment as much as we would think? Think about the products like the Google Glass, right? The eyewear that would light up with notifications for email or texts right in front of your eye on your glasses. Products like this mainly irritated users rather than adding any enrichment whatsoever to their lives. Augmented reality, rather than becoming the next big thing in entertainment, has caught on mostly as adapted fun Snapchat filters that change your face into something else, or games like the popular Pokemon Go, which populate characters in the real world through your camera phone. Not exactly the metaverse that Zuckerberg envisioned. When new technology comes into our space, we tend to ask questions like, what can this device add to my everyday life? Not necessarily, how can this overhaul it? And now with COVID shutting us indoors for months and moving many of our jobs online, people are asking questions like, is the internet and social media in general really adding that much value to my life? Is the metaverse just where we inevitably are headed? Have you ever seen the movie or read the book Ready Player One? Uh, yeah, I saw the movie, but I didn't read the book. Uh, so, yeah, I haven't read the book, and apparently the movie and the book kind of differ. But the movie I thought was really cool, and that this is kind of the premise of that movie. Like, this guy lived in a strange, you know, future world where people lived in these, like, stacked trailer parks. Nobody had much money, and they enjoyed their virtual life because it was a lot better than their actual life. So I think unless the world falls apart, which is possible, and becomes something like that, it's going to be hard to get people to spend much time in a virtual world instead of their actual life. 
know, Jay, we've talked on several different occasions on Commute about the wild, interesting, and often manipulative, I'm looking at you, Ty Warner, a.k.a. Mr. Beanie Baby Creator, the world of collectibles. So while this segment surely qualifies as another entry into the world of collectibles and a study on the people who become obsessed with something, I think it's really about something altogether different and unique. This story is really about someone that never asked for their art to be collected, obsessed over, and in some cases, fought over. Jay, today we are looking into the cult-like collectible status of a brand of what is called crockery. That means plates, cups, mugs, etc. And it is a real word. I looked it up. Created by a woman named Ray Dunn. But Jay, before we get too far into this story, I love the conversation that you and I had last week about Ray Dunn coffee cups. So I told you I was fascinated by this story. I wanted to do a segment on it and asked if you, like millions of others, owned a Ray Dunn brand coffee mug. You know, a a mug with the word blessed or but first coffee, something like that on it. And how did you respond to that? Well, throughout the course of that conversation, I realized that I actually owned one, and it wasn't because... But this is, you were shaking your head no, like I've never heard of this person while I was telling you about it. Yeah, and then you said something about like, yeah, the font kind of looks like a fourth grader made it, and like the cup kind of looks kind of chunky, like somebody in high school pottery made it. And all of a sudden, it was like the light shone down, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have one. And it's because (laughs) right before we had, uh, my wife and I had our twin boys, somebody put one that says dad on it in my mailbox at work. It's enormous. It's so big. Like it probably holds like 40 ounces of coffee. It's like one of those like speedway <laughs> pop things that people buy that are like giant jugs or whatever. It's so big, <laughs> which just proves my point. Almost everybody owns a Ray Dunn product whether they realize it or not. So as I mentioned and as you just uh, backed up a couple moments ago, Ray Dunn products, so cups, plates, etc., are relatively simple in design. They typically have a cream color to them with a word like yum or family and font that looks like it could have been handwritten. But Jay, for many, many American shoppers, these products are so popular that Ray Dunn is truly a household name. Carried in nearly every TJ Maxx, Home Goods, and Marshalls retail store around America, Dunn's products have risen beyond a normal consumer demand. They have now taken on a cult-like status. Ray Dunn's superfan groups have popped up all over the United States, using Facebook groups as their main form of internal communication. These groups named things like Ray Dunn Hunters, the Ray Dunnies, what have I done? And my personal favorite, girls just want to have done, often contain as many as 25,000 members. And they share secrets, location tips, ways to possibly style the mugs in your house, and the newest and coveted Ray Dunn pieces, when they will release, and where they can find them for purchase. And, you know, I'm not in the business of being judgy because I know that I like things that other people would look at and be like, that's stupid. So I get it. But at the same time, like, I don't get Ray Dunn. Like, it's it's like you're buying a butter dish and it just says the word butter on it. Well, first of all, unless you are a suburban housewife, you're not the target market. Second of all, 
People, as we've talked about many times on and off the air, love to collect things, so stay tuned. Much like the height of Beanie Babies, which you've talked about on a previous episode, true Ray Dunnies have a shopping strategy, typically born in those superfan groups. Seasonal mug releases draw hundreds and, Jay, occasionally thousands of shoppers to flock a certain store in the hopes of scoring one, often fighting and plowing over each other as part of the process. Some members of these groups even have been known to lie to each other about releases to try and throw off other shoppers in the hope that they'll be the one to be able to purchase the piece for themselves. I love that so much. Like, I love the backstabbing that goes on in this community. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's at the, uh, it's going to release at the TJ Maxx downtown (laughs) when they know very well it's the TJ Maxx outside of town. (laughs) Jay, some seasonal non-drinkware items, like a ceramic pig-shaped canister with the word oink on its side, sells for big time bucks in the resale market. The pig's original cost, $16.99. What could you expect to buy it for on the resale market? Try $250 bucks. The interesting thing, though, is that Ray Dunn superfans, Jay, are typically not in the game to make money. They do this for the thrill of the hunt. Often a true Ray Dunn hunter will have an entire room in their house decorated in only Ray Dunn pieces. Thousands of pieces, all adding up to a very substantial amount of money. So while most collectible crazy folks are thinking of the potential long-term investment they're making, the Dunnies are doing this for themselves. But Jay, here's also where the story really gripped my attention. What about Ray Dunn herself, the actual artist behind the designs? Unlike many collectible creators before her, Dunn doesn't understand the obsession with her product. And to be honest, she didn't even really want it. A self-proclaimed, shy, soft-spoken introvert, Dunn makes her art because she just likes making something that people enjoy. It makes me really sad that people resell them, Dunn recently told Refinery29.com. I wish I could sell more of my handmade stuff, but when I do it, I know that people are buying it and reselling it for hundreds of dollars more. And it really upsets me because, I don't know, I feel like I'm being used. I've had people break out and start crying when they meet me. It's truly remarkable and overwhelming. And Jay, will the Ray Dunn obsession go on forever? Probably not. Like most collectibles, I'd assume it has a shelf life. But maybe, just maybe... Its unique staying power rests in the humble, unassuming personality of its creator, an artist who started making drinkware because, well, she just liked doing it. You know, at the end of the day, like, again, like, we don't judge, like, collectibles are just huge now. Like, they're they're so much bigger now than they've ever been. And we've talked about this on other segments. Like, you mentioned the Beanie Baby ones. We've talked about it with sports cards, things that are collectibles. People were already big into it, but with COVID and being inside and having a little bit of extra money to kind of have a hobby to work on, like people are just in another world with collectibles now. You know, you just never know which collectibles will take off. I still, and we may do a segment on this one day, I'm still fascinated by a collectible that just didn't work. Pogs. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, stay tuned. We're going to be talking about (laughs) Pogs soon. Where are my Poggers at? So Dave, I know for me growing up, I was big into reading the comic strips uh, in the Sunday paper. It was just kind of a tradition for me uh, every Sunday. And 
you know, I, I developed some favorites along the way. Were you somebody who read comic strips? Yeah, um, when I was a kid, I always looked at them, and I was always shocked how unfunny they were. I mean, whether it was Garfield, Beetle Bailey, I think there was one called like Family Circus. Never funny, not once. Well, I mean, we can debate the uh, you know the humor in comics another time. Uh, maybe that's something that we can bring up later, right? One of my personal favorite comic strips was one called Calvin and Hobbes, right? I'm sure you're familiar with Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. It's really like what Calvin and Hobbes has become that really fascinated me. So let me set the stage for you first, okay? And then I'll ask you if you know what I'm talking about here. So Calvin and Hobbes was created by Bill Watterson, and it ran between 1985 and 1995 and features Calvin, a six-year-old boy, and his beloved stuffed tiger Hobbes as they go through everyday life antics and muse on the meaning of life in the process. The names Calvin and Hobbes actually come from John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes, 16th and 17th century philosophers who sort of sets the tone of the comic strip. You may recognize Calvin from a very different place, though. To you, he may just simply be the mischievous child featured on a bumper sticker who is doing something rather rude and vulgar to some sort of logo uh, of maybe a sports team or a truck brand. I am, of course, referring to the knockoff of Calvin, the peeing Calvin bumper sticker. And you will probably not be shocked to know that the creator of Calvin and Hobbes never created the image and is horrified by it. Really, like my entire life, I can't remember the first time I ever saw one of those decals, but I feel like it's one of those universal things that everybody knows. Yeah, and it's like really offensive looking. Like his face, like he just looks like so mean. Like when he, because yeah. he's like turning around looking at you, like, yeah, I'm peeing on this. What about it? And he's one of those kids that pulls his pants down all the way when he pees because you can see his butt too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, really, like, the image goes against the very nature of the character featured in the comic strip. And if the creator of Calvin has never drawn this image or condoned it, then where did it come from? And is it illegal? And if so, why does it exist? And the answer, as with most things, is, well, it's complicated. A comic strip from June 5th, 1988 seems to be the template for the peeing Calvin. In this strip, Calvin is making a water balloon to play a prank on Hobbes and looks over his shoulder with that mischievous look from the peeing Calvin image. The earliest appearance of this goes back to November of 1995 in a story in the Tampa Bay Times that describes a 25-foot motorhome with Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes urinating on the letters FSU for Florida State University. So I guess ultimately we blame Florida here, uh, unless we can find some sort of earlier uh, creation of this image. But sometime following, the image began appearing on the backs of cars as bumper stickers, with Calvin peeing on anything from a Ford logo to the logos of every sports team to pictures of political figures like Barack Obama or George Bush to people like Osama bin Laden following 9-11 to nearly everything that someone somewhere on the planet did not like. It spread like wildfire and was very much embraced by fans of NASCAR. Peeing Calvin became a staple of NASCAR fans across the country who plastered images of Calvin urinating on rival drivers over thousands of cars for decades. In response to the lewdness, some have resisted by creating a knockoff of peeing Calvin called Praying Calvin, an image depicting <laughs> Calvin kneeling in front of the cross with his hands folded in prayer. I guess sort of a duality of man situation. Poor Calvin, man. He just doesn't get to choose. He's on both sides. <laughs> 
Right. He's just, he's everybody's puppet like to say <laughs> what they want to say, I guess. And so my question in all of this is where is Bill Watterson, right? The creator of Calvin during all of this. Watterson has been steadfast since the comics creation that he would never license characters of Calvin and Hobbes for merchandising. To Watterson, Calvin and Hobbes merch toys like toys or shirts is selling out as a professional cartoonist. But the flip side of this equation, though, is that licensed merchandisers are the best candidates to pursue and punish copyright violators. Watterson and the United Press Syndicate own the images, but without the money, the time, and the legal department of a merchandising company, hunting down the distributors of these images, probably ranging in the thousands of people, is just too tall a task. And that's not to say there have not been attempts. In 1996, a woman in Minnesota was jailed for wearing an offensive Calvin t-shirt in court. In South Carolina and Alabama, cops reportedly ticketed drivers with the decal. But there was no stopping the phenomenon. Without an organization leading a legal effort to push back, the image ran wild. Knockoffs of peeing Calvin poured in and got even more indecent. Foul language was added, sometimes a middle finger or two, and the image took on new life. And remember here that the IP violations are enforced by lawsuits, not the police. An organized, well-funded legal team could probably stop the stickers. But remember, Watterson doesn't have that. Here is Kathy Kerr, a spokeswoman for Watterson in 1998. She says this, If we see it happening with the stickers, then the attorneys can start their thing. But these are sort of fly-by-night operators. It moves around a lot, so you never really catch anyone. Bill Watterson decided not to license his characters, which eliminated some of the watchdogs. The battle has never really been resolved, and Watterson is candid about his place in it all. He feels defeated by the image, and in his mind, it is too big to crush, and maybe the best way to fight it is to let the phenomenon die out over time. So I'll leave you with this, Dave. Remember the original comic strip from from where the decal probably came, the water balloon one? In that strip, before Calvin can dump the water balloon on napping Hobbes, Hobbes mutters to him, as if life isn't short enough causing Calvin to pause and throw the balloon away instead. And maybe ultimately that's the answer here, right? Maybe time heals all, and maybe to Watterson, this just is not a battle worth fighting. That's just lazy, though. I mean, to say they can't, it's, it's, a, it's something they can't find, they can't pinpoint, just drive to the mall. Every mall in America, there's a truck parked there right now with Calvin peeing on something. You know, Jay, in the middle of that Calvin and Hobbes segment, you said, I guess we could just blame Florida, and it got me thinking about the Florida birthday challenge. You ever heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, you Google your birthday in Florida. That's all you Google, and it's guaranteed that a crazy story will come up. And so my birthday is September 10th, which is coming up. And so I Googled while you were doing your segment, uh, September 10th, Florida, and naked Florida man causes fire while baking cookies on George Foreman grill. And I just happen to have mine pulled up here too, Dave. A 71-year-old Florida man tied a gun to a weather balloon to fake his own murder, police say. Oh, it's perfect. And that will do it for this week's show. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget, please rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say hey at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.